Good morning and welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. This program is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. The presenter receives grant and research support from NIH, NVS, Celgene, and AbbVie and is a consultant for NVS, AbbVie, and Amgen. These relationships do not influence today's presentation. To claim CME credits today, answer the survey evaluation. The link will be put into the chat. If you have a question for the presenter, please type it into the Q&A section, and I will read it at the end. And now Dr. Samady, President of Georgia Heart, will introduce Dr. Mehta. Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's a uh, huge honor and a privilege uh, to present this morning's Grand Round Cardiovascular Speaker at the Georgia Heart Institute. Um, this morning's speaker is Dr. Nihal Mehta, uh, who's currently uh, LASCAR Senior Investigator and Chief of Lab of Inflammation and Cardiometabolic Disease at the NHLBI. Um, Dr. Mehta attended an accelerated seven-year biomedical program um, at, the universe, at George Washington University, where he um, received his BA with honors in 1997 um, and then his MD in 2001. Um, he subsequently uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania and in 2009 received a MSCE in genetic epidemiology. He then stayed at, at Penn to do um, internship residency and chief medical residency, followed by um, cardiovascular disease, nuclear, and preventive cardiology fellowships. After all this training, he decided to do a postdoctoral fellowship in genetic ep epidemiology with focus on inflammation and lipoproteins at the um, renowned University of Pennsylvania Center of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics as well as the Institute of Translational Medicine and Therapeutics. In 2009, Dr. Mehta joined the faculty in the cardiovascular division of the University of Pennsylvania um, and remained an uh, associate scholar at the um, Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics Unit. In 2012, he was recruited to the National Institute of Health as the inaugural LASCAR Clinical Research Scholar um, joining the NHLBI's cardiovascular and pulmonary branch. In addition to the Lasker Scholarship, Dr. Mehta has received numerous local and national awards, including being named Fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Heart Association. He's actively involved in several foundations and organizations, um, and he's got leadership um, opportunities and capacities at the American Heart Association, as well as the National Psoriasis Foundation, uh, and as you hear today, he's leading some of the work in understanding cardiovascular aspects of psoriasis. Nihal is also editor of the section of Cardiovascular Metabolic and Lipoprotein uh, Translation in the Journal of Translational Medicine and serves um, as a reviewer on several international grants um, as well as biomedical journals. So you can see that um, we are absolutely privileged and honored to have uh, Dr. Mehta join us to give cardiovascular grand rounds this morning on CCTA for risk stratification and why it may be the future. Nihal, welcome to the Georgia Heart Institute Cardiovascular Grand Rounds. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here, Dr. Samadi. And, you know, it's interesting. I have been thinking a lot about uh, risk stratification. We're just at the heels of the CRT meeting, and I've been keeping up on updates. 
And I'm going to spend some time today going through um, how we have looked at cardiometabolic diseases from a different lens and using that as a springboard for risk stratification across uh, different populations. So I've left some time for questions at the end. I know virtual talks are a little bit difficult to interrupt and, and ask questions. So please do put them in the chat as they come up. It makes for a more lively Q&A. Uh, um, Dr. Samadhi and I have had a long history of uh, collaboration that I will end the talk with. But before we get there and get to some very exciting CCTA data, I would like to start with some basics so that we're all on the same page. So good morning, my name is Nehal Mehta and you know, Dr. Samadhi gave me such a nice introduction. I don't have many, many things to add, except I wanna remind you I am a cardiologist because what gives, uh, what gives the impression of me being a dermatologist by the middle of the talk, I wanna just remind you that I'm a cardiologist because I will, I will talk about some of those um, uh, cardiac risk stratification issues. So cardiometabolic diseases, let's get started. We used to call them metabolic syndrome, the deadly quartet. Uh, but what we've learned is that not all five or four will run together in the same person. So uh, about maybe 10 years ago, uh, they changed, they being the endocrine society and others changed the term to cardiometabolic diseases. And what is that? So it's presence of any atherosclerosis, insulin resistance, obesity, or high cholesterol. So you could look at any patient who has, uh, who's treated with a statin and you can say you have cardiometabolic disease. And I think this is very important. I'm gonna go through a case. So I run a few practices around the country uh, of inflammatory risk stratification for cardiovascular diseases. And here's the case. It's a 44 year old female. She comes in with borderline hypertension, untreated psoriasis. And it turns out that she came in for the evaluation because her longtime friend had stents placed a couple weeks ago. I think it woke up a little bit in her. She was on no medications. Mom had type two diabetes. Mom, uh, dad had a myocardial infarction at 54. Both of those increase the likelihood of her having one of those by about 25%. Her social history was significant for tobacco use, uh, about half a pack per day. She had no general medical complaints. Her physical exam demonstrated, you could see it highlighted in red here, her physical exam demonstrated that she had um, diastolic hypertension, blood pressure of 144 over 89, body mass index of 32, which most of us may say it's average, uh, especially in your part of the country, this might be average, but it's not okay, it's obese. Anything over 30 is obese. Um, waist to hip ratio, you know, holding a lot in the middle there, apple shaped, not pear shaped. Um, and then 9% of the body covered with psoriasis. So look at your palm right now. Your palm is a great thing. It gives you the size of about four ounces of meat. So if you're trying to figure out how much meat to eat or protein to eat, look at your palm. Um, it also tells you 1% of your body surface area. So this is 9% this woman has plaques on her body. So a solid moderate psoriasis. Her uh, labs for uh, our American counterparts are on the left. Our European counterparts, if we have any, are on the right. Uh, total cholesterol of 210, LDL of 159. Triglycerides of 200, um, HDL of 40, and a fasting sugar at 44 of 116. I mean, this screams metabolic dyslipidemia, and I hope you see that. Basically, a, uh, an increase in ApoB lipoproteins, which is LDL and triglycerides with the suppression of APOA lipoproteins, which is HDL. 
So in classic chief resident form, a case summary, uh, 44 untreated moderate psoriasis. She's smoking. She has a history of CAD in her family. Um, she has high blood pressure. She's obese. She's got a glucose of 116 consistent with prediabetes. What is our problem with this patient? Her cardiovascular risk, which is driven by her age, turns out to be fairly low. I'm going to go through one algorithm. I use this slide just because it's so great for illustration that even 30 years ago, we were on to the concept that, listen, you look at their risk factors, age, lipids, diabetes, and smoking, and you predict a 10-year risk. When you look at someone like this, this is purely cookbook medicine. The slide is old on purpose because it still tells you her Framingham risk score by LDL is 9%. 9% puts her right in that low risk category. We all know that a patient who's 44 has some smoking history, family history, um, obesity, insulin resistance, all that stuff flies under the radar. So what I'm here to do today is talk about inflammatory diseases. And why do I talk about inflammatory diseases? Because I do believe they're the sixth risk factor in heart disease. We're not able to detect it readily. So I'm going to talk about some image-guided therapy and image-guided uh, risk stratification that I'd like to point out. First, we have to get on the same page that inflammation is important. Data here show that in the women's health study, those healthy women who had an elevated CRP had a single fourfold risk of having future cardiovascular events. So why psoriasis? Well, psoriasis is a common inflammatory skin disease, very undiagnosed. So someone may statistically have it who's watching this. And if you look at the upper right, I don't know if my mouse will show, but you'll see here, this is approximately 10 palms just on his trunk. So this is severe cutaneous um, psoriasis affecting the trunk. And in that person, there's over 1 billion immune cells activated in that uh, person. What my lab did in the Clinical Center for Epidemiology and Biostatistics, partnering with Dr. Joel Gelfand, is we did a series of epidemiological studies, which started in 2006 and ended when I went to the NIH in 2012. And in those six years, we found three things. Number one, people with psoriasis die faster, okay? They die five years faster. And the five years faster is due to cardiovascular disease, infection, and cancer. And the immune system is involved in all three. What we took to the bank, if you will, is that a young patient with psoriasis has a twofold risk of having a heart attack. So that's called a statistical age interaction. And that age interaction was what was reported in this paper in JAMA, a seminal paper in 2006. Finally, the third finding on this slide is that when you look at what the adjusted abnormalities are for hazard ratios, it's anywhere between 43 and 58% in fully adjusted models. Therefore, the single diagnosis of psoriasis portends an increased risk of cardiometabolic diseases, and in this case, cardiovascular disease. Therefore, I remind you, I'm a cardiologist, but I'm utilizing this disease to understand the immune footprint, the systemic inflammation, and the lipoprotein dysfunction, which lead to this tombstone myocardial infarction on the right. That myocardial infarction on the right has a 58% upregulation in those with psoriasis. So there is something that we're missing here. Well, what is it? So I was grateful to the uh, Lasker Foundation, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the National Institutes of Health 
Um, in 2012, Dr. Collins welcomed me here uh, as the first Lasker clinical scholar, and I started a giant cohort study. So the first thing I did is I, I, I put together a five-year, now 10-year, thanks to uh, you know, the funding patterns, we have a 10-year cohort study on following patients with psoriasis, and we compare them to the protocol below. So I remind you here how things work at the intramural program at the NIH. I do not give out money. People are always very nice to me thinking I'm going to be a grant funder. I do not give out money. I'm actually an intramural scientist who takes the same grant money that others do. And here, there are two such protocols. This is the equivalent of two RO1s. The first one basically takes psoriasis and those are followed with imaging visits in green. And then by four years, we have three serial images and they're all deeply phenotyped. We get PET-CT, PET-MRI, coronary CTA and all of these people. And the psoriasis data is compared during a flare and then it's treatment. So I'm gonna show you some treatment effects of storms of inflammation. Protocol two is healthy diabetics and coronary disease. And we compare protocol one to protocol two, and we get the same amount of deep phenotyping. Another good piece of news just this last month, we've been approved to have longitudinal enrollment of protocol two. So we'll have zero to one year data and we'll have zero to four year data. Very exciting. There's very few studies in the world. There's actually none that will allow you to scan repeatedly patients with subclinical atherosclerosis, but we have made enough of an understanding of atheroprogression that we've been able to do these studies, and I'm going to share some of that data with you today. First, I'd like to point out that psoriasis is as inflamed as an acute coronary syndrome. So shown here is 120 psoriasis patients walking in to my clinic, comparing them to patients who have a, a proven ACS in my ER, compared to those who came in with chest pain without EKG changes in uh, troponins. So we have a control group on the right, a real group of ACS in the middle that Dr. Samadhi probably would open up the cath lab for in most cases, and then psoriasis that are walkie-talkie in the Nahal's clinic. Look at the TNF-alpha and IL-1 beta levels. Astounding. Five times higher IL-1 beta levels in psoriasis, nine times higher levels of TNF-alpha in psoriasis. These are people who are walking and talking, and they are having inflammation on a daily basis that resembles an acute coronary syndrome. Secondly, I've spent my last three years of my postdoctoral fellowship studying lipids, because I thought that lipids would interact with in immunology and, and, and create this milieu of accelerated atherosclerosis. Imagine you took a light and you shined it through a tube of blood, okay? And that's NMR spectroscopy. And what this shows you is, is that there's a normal pattern of lipidemia here. The intermediate dense lipoproteins are on the left. And then you'll see that the right side here is the high density lipoproteins. In psoriasis compared to controls, there's this ApoB shift. So remember I had shown you our patient has more triglycerides and more LDL, and that LDL is small and dense. We know that small dense LDL is from diabetics. And we've now extrapolated that into chronic inflammatory populations. Third, imagine your body had a way of reversing the cholesterol out of it. Well, it does, and that's HDL. HDL's performance of reverse cholesterol transport starts when the nascent HDL finds its way to a lipid-loaded macrophage, 
using an ABCA1 transporter, it esterifies it into a mature HDL. And then by going back into the liver using an SRB1 scavenger receptor pathway, it poops it out into the bile. So our body has a way of taking the cholesterol out. Imagine that this custodial system was aberrant. Well, that's what we first discovered in psoriasis in 2012. I wondered if this whole disease was a constipation of the cholesterol that it is handling in the body. And shown here, I would usually laugh at a grad student for trying to make a story of something like this, right? You're gonna talk about seven, 8% differences, seven, 8% every day of their lives. I eat an egg, 80, 80 milligrams of cholesterol. My body will excrete probably 79.5 milligrams of that cholesterol, maybe more. A patient with psoriasis will hold on to six milligrams of that cholesterol deposited in the skin, deposited in the bone marrow. And this is not unique to psoriasis. And why? Because it retards HDL function. So HDL dys dysfunction, ApoB lipoproteins, and a lot of systemic inflammation makes for a very terrible milieu for atherogenesis. So what I've done in this first maybe 15 to 20 minutes of the talk is I've hopefully convinced you, I'm a cardiologist, that studies psoriasis as a model to understand inflammatory atherogenesis. It has a waxing and waning course. They develop CBD at a young age. Why wait for the event? Why wait for the event? You know, really bothers me that we haven't changed that paradigm yet. And then finally, there's a broad range of therapies that are FDA approved that allow me to use this as a human experiment, if you will, when they get their clinical treatment. So I'm gonna talk about that last bullet, which I think has thrusted our program. In fact, that's how Habib and I uh, got to know each other was we shared a podium at the CRT together. Okay, now let's get to some fun. We're talking about multimodal imaging, okay? So I started the program in 12 doing the studies on the right, FDG PET-CT and FDG PET-MR. If, if you're familiar with FDG, you might know it from the oncology world. Basically, we give radioactive glucose and it goes to metabolically active tissues. I discovered in 2006 that you can look at the area of vascular inflammation in the aorta and it correlated very well to one's general cardiovascular health. We then fused it to a CT and we were able to uh, check out whether there is distensibility issues and other things that MR allows. But my favorite attending at Penn just retired. His name was Irvin Hurling. And he taught me on, on cardiology rounds, on our rounds for fellowship. Nahal, do you know who Willie Sutton is? And I used to laugh. I'm like, Willie Sutton? Yes, I do. He's a bank robber. Willie Futton, Sutton's favorite quote was, why would you rob a convenience store where you could go to where the money is? Go rob a bank, right? So I got to the NIH and I realized, why not go to the coronaries? And why not go to where we think the myocardial infarctions are actually starting and ending with pathophysiology? So we incorporated the CCTA, which is what I'm gonna focus most of the rest of my talk on. And that will give us before an event, a plaque burden, which I'm gonna show you how to do that. But before I do that, I wanna show you a few images that along our journey to 2017. Um, in 2011, this was a world's first image. We compared psoriasis to non-psoriasis, and this defines psoriasis as a serious autoimmune disease, okay? What you'll see here on right is a, on left, is a healthy control uh, woman, um, kidneys and bladder, homogeneous uptake. And what you'll see in the patient with psoriasis, a male, um, just for illustrative purposes, is four findings. You'll see uptake in the joints when this person doesn't have psoriatic arthritis. You'll see uptake in the skin 
where there's psoriatic lesions, you'll see there's a heavy amount of hepatic uptake. We'll call that the psoriatic liver. And then finally, we'll see this area of the aorta, which just lights up this area of vascular inflammation. Now I've just joined Twitter about a year ago, but this was 2015, I didn't have Twitter, but I did learn that this image on the right generated a lot of tweets. Why? For the first time, patients with psoriasis found that what was seen on the outside of their body in a PASI score on the x-axis was mirrored by vascular inflammation on the y-axis. So for the first time, patients with psoriasis used to say, when I look bad on the outside, I'm feeling bad on the inside. Well, so is your aorta. Look at your aorta here, right? I mean, I've never seen this amount of uptake in an aortic wall. I'm not gonna have time to go over it, but that aortic uptake directly relates to coronary plaque burden. So it was at this time, never published this because I wasn't sure what to make of it, but we had our post-MI studies coming in and boy, did that vascular inflammation look just as though someone just had an MI. So they looked like psoriasis, they looked like an MI, and it was this year around 2015 that we asked this question. If psoriasis in fact shares inflammatory pathways with coronary disease, might the coronaries be affected? So it took us three years to get the right number of patients. I'm gonna see if this plays. We're very blessed. And I will tell you, I, I love collaborating. Habib knows that. And if anybody would like to, at the end, I'll put all of my info up. Just buzz me. If there's something that I show you here that interests you, just reach out to me. I, I, I highly uh, recommend uh, working through the data that's uh, you know ours, if you will. So CCTA upper left, we have two such scanners. We can do these scans in an order of magnitude lower than other uh, radiation studies. On the bottom left, this is, uh, I'm running low on battery. Let me just get a, a, a charger one second, if you don't mind, excuse me. So right. back to our LAD, so give me one second. Sorry guys. No, no, no worries. This is, right. this is fascinating. Back to the LAD. So subtract the OSHA structure, subtract the myocardial structures. We're left with an ACC AHA 17 segment model of coronary disease. Blows my mind that we took this long to get here. Why? Look right and look at my finger. Front, side, back, medial. You get four views. You see inner and outer contours. You get what's called a coronary plaque burden. There's a mixed calcified plaque, goes down. We stop and distal prune at the spatial resolution of the software, as well as the machine. What do we get? So on the bottom, if you care about the techniques, if you're a method person, um, at the top, if you just wanna know what's going on, we use software called QAngio from the Netherlands. We basically are able to opacify the lumen, subtract out it, and left with what's the coronary wall thickness. That coronary wall thickness has been dubbed the plaque volume. I look at it as a coronary wall thickness and I've gotten questions about the spatial resolution. It's absolutely uh, correlated to OCT. It's correlated very well to what we see later on when these rupture angiographically. Um, we have a few cases, we have about 11 events that we've had in the cohort. Um, and then finally, we have different lengths of segments. So we normalize that to when it gets down to the distal pruning of the vessel and we get something called a plaque index. It's been published in the European Heart Journal, JAMA Cardiology, Circulation, and Cardiovascular Research. We felt like we did the, the gamut of all four because we felt that people needed to understand that this is a continuous outcome that you can 
follow before somebody develops a plaque or an MI. I'm gonna show you some of that data. Okay, first set. So I told you it would get you to 2017. You still have five years of journey left. So in 2017, the first seminal finding was that when you took an age and gender matched control, compared it to a psoriasis patient, you had about a 15 to 16% upregulation of their total plaque burden, of which the majority was non-calcified. And when you look at those differences, they held up even accounting for age, sex, blood pressure, lipids, glucose, current smoking, and lipid treatment. So if you took your smartphone, this is the time where I was in person, I would love to be in person. Um, I, I hold up my smartphone and I show you that, did you know that if you turn your smartphone to the side, it turns into a scientific calculator? I really hope you did. And if you didn't, that's okay. You don't have to tell me. Then you put 0.15 in there and then you hit E to the X. Wow. What does that give you? It gives you a bastardized odds ratio of 1.16. So you have a 16% chance of having a non-calcified plaque elevation just sheerly with having psoriasis. This was any, all comers of psoriasis, not just severe. Why do I care? As a cardiologist, I think Dr. Samadhi and all of you who are in the crowd taking care of these vascular patients know the most common cause of acute myocardial infarction is a non-calcified plaque. And we need to do something about this now that we have found this. Now, it was 2017 and Motoyama put this article out on not all plaques are created equal. And I agree that if we were in a room that was small and you guys were all willing and ready to stand outside the door, that'd be a standing room only because there's not enough room in the room, right? Here, the vessel does the same thing. It's standing room only and it pooches out. That, in my opinion, is one of the most high-risk, high-risk plaque features is positive remodeling, okay? And there's a remodeling index that's been published. I'm not going to go over it, but it's there. Secondly, if you have a bunch of lipid, what did we say? Psoriasis is constipated of lipids. So what if you have a bunch of lipids? Guess what? It's going to do met metastatic lipidosis. I just, met I just made that up. But it's going to be lipids everywhere. Lipids in the brain, lipids in the bone marrow, lipids in the vessels. You get these low attenuation plaques and they're not good. So then in 17, very clever, you know, student now who's a, I think he's a cardiologist at Duke, um, basically asked, well, can you find these plaques in a psoriasis, patient with psoriasis? And Boy, oh boy, that year, unfortunately, this 38-year-old had an RPL ruptured plaque. At baseline, he was fine. And then at year one, he had the event in between. And so we went back to his baseline scan. Hey, we're learning as we go. There was high-risk plaque features. He continued to not treat his psoriasis. He had severe cutaneous disease and he had a heart attack. Not only that, we then used that as a springboard to publish that patients with psoriasis have high-risk plaques. And not only are they high-risk, there are about a third of them that have it, and they come on 14 years sooner than the Bethesda worried well. So this is a group of 60-year-olds who come in for uh, new statin therapy, and they get a CCTA, so they have dyslipidemia, and we're just checking to see what their coronaries look like. And what you'll find here is 14 years sooner, you're getting the same amount of high-risk plaque. Wow, by my slides earlier, that was about when those patients were having that spike in their age interaction curve. So we're, we're finding that the action in this disease is between 40 and 50, whereas in general population, it's between 50 and 60, and in women, 60 and 70. So we're catching this earlier drift of age. 
And it was at that time yet in 2017, still around that same time, we got a call from Marcus Chen in RCT reading room who said, hey, Nahal, what are you doing up there? That plaque is gone. And I usually don't like to say regression. It always worried me to say regression. But here, I actually saw a 30% shaggy non-calcified plaque go in one year. And this happened about 13 times before we looked into it. We had a clever medical student who said, Dr. Mehta, if we really looked at those starting biologic therapy and compared them to those who chose not to, would we be able to see if the coronaries change? Okay, let's take a look. So luckily by this time, now it's 2019, I promised you we'd get through up until 2021. Um, it's 2019 and we asked, if you started biologic therapy, 90 of you, and let's say there's 30 of you who didn't, and there's people who choose not to use severe psoriasis treatment, they'd rather just treat it naturally. And the baseline CTAs were compared after one year of therapy for those who got it, compared to those who didn't get it, they just got another scan. And these data are very important. I'm gonna pause on this slide because what would you think would happen with biologic therapy? I would think that inflammation would go down. And I wouldn't know if any of the risk factors for heart disease would change. And in fact, they didn't. Here, we saw a reduction in CRP very significantly. Um, and then we also started the people on the right on one of these three biologics. And if you care about biologics, it's basically anti-TNF, anti-1223, anti-IL-17. So most commonly, Numera, Stellara, and Cosentis, okay? This astounded me. In 2019, um, we received an NIH Director's Award in 18 for this work from Francis Collins. Um, for the first in human evidence that treating remote inflammation improves vascular health, okay? So we treated systemically, but we saw an improvement in the vasculature. So these are patients getting treated for a skin disease with a biologic. They're found to have high-risk plaque. And then when we're treating their psoriasis, we're watching their coronaries. And what did we find? So A is pretreatment, B is post-treatment. And this is somebody who received anti-IL-17 therapy, so cosentins. Their skin went down by about 90% improvement. It went from a 13 to a, well, nearly a one. They almost saw 100% improvement. And from baseline, what you'll see is there's this large red lipid-rich necrotic pore, which then goes away. Never had seen that before in my life. And you see this blooming, this increase of calcium, which actually when the body heals, it doesn't know what else to do. So it sends in its army of calcifying macrophages as well as uh, smooth muscle cells and, fiber and, and the fibroblasts, right? And then finally, you saw this light green area of fibrofatty burden decrease. Now look, don't ever let anyone sell you a bridge, right? Don't ever do qualitative analysis alone. Do some quantitative. So here are the data from the paper. I'm gonna go through these rather quickly because the point is, is that when you're on biologic therapy, you get a reduction in your non-calcified plaque that equivalent to about a statin. And we've used this before that when you treat the systemic disease, you're actually gaining benefit that of, of approximately a statin. And that, that, that really, again, imagine if you had the person on a statin as well. Um, all right, and then when they weren't on therapy, you actually saw these things go up, but non-statistically significant. This is by far the most impactful slide. When you think of the things that kill people, lipid-rich necrotic cores and things, they went down by over half in this patient population, whereas those not on biologic therapy actually saw a massive, massive uh, 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 worsening of these. To a point where when I 
took these data to our IRB, this was the reason why we got approval to scan our healthy volunteers at different decades. How do you contextualize this? Is this what happens to untreated psoriasis? This is where I, 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 I then now at most talks will very, very, I think fervently say that unopposed inflammation is a dangerous thing to blood vessels. Finally, people ask me, well, what about the different types of therapies? The most prominent was anti-TNF in terms of, sorry, prevalent, not prominent. Um, and there was a reduction, not statistically significant. And these are subgroups. These are post-hoc subgroups. So I didn't expect them to be significant. But look at anti-IL-17 therapy. Whoa, right? 16% reduction, 12% reduction. And the thought here is, is that there is probably a, a steep withdrawal in inflammation with an improvement in HDL function. We're working on those data now. Okay, a few other modalities, and then I'll talk about our collaboration with uh, Dr. Samadhi, which is probably the most exciting. Going through our uh, phenotyping, there's also a way of looking at diffuse coronary inflammation. And so shown here is something called the fat attenuation index. This is out of Caristo Diagnostics at Oxford. And we got our whole cohort completed just this past week. This is the first 100 patients, which was published a few years ago. When you take those same patients who went on biologic therapy versus not, and you did the same 90 versus 30, you found that when they went on biologic therapy, their coronary inflammation went down. Their coronary inflammation actually decreased. And it went to a point where it almost became normal, okay? When you looked across the board, every type of therapy reduced coronary inflammation, except for those who are on systemic and biologic treatment and didn't have any therapy, they did not improve. Now, what, this is the most, I think, this is the most sophisticated phenotyping that we are able to complete without filleting open someone's vessel. So I'm gonna spend a few minutes on this data. Um, again, everything that I show you are part of collaborative studies that are non-paid. I am not a consultant anywhere. I don't sit on any board. So again, I am Switzerland. When I am presenting data to you on different imaging modalities, well, I guess I can't say that anymore. I am neutral, okay? Because I guess that's not fair to say in what's the current environment. So VASCUCAP is a histopathologic imaging application and shown on the left is a coronary artery with a lipid rich necrotic core and shown on the right is its correlate on this software. It was initially developed in the carotid. I saw it, it's elucid bioimaging from Massachusetts. I saw it and I grabbed it to put it into the coronaries. And you'll see here that their software takes very nice images. They will segment out where they see the lipid rich necrotic core and we will get its area. All right. So what does this look like? Well, I promised you we'd get to 2020 and 2021. This is 2020. So in CERC imaging just last year, we took that same 90 versus 30, but then of course, CERC imaging said we need more. So we went and we finished out the entire cohort. So I think that total paper had about 270 scans in it. And here is that same person who dropped their coronary inflammation on that prior scan with IL-17 therapy. This is a person on IL-17 therapy. And what's found here, is that their lipid-rich necrotic core, which is delineated here with some calcium, actually dissipates at one year with this increase in calcification. I am just shocked at the amount of time that this healed it. This was one year. 
I mean, if we looked sooner, would it be healing sooner? I don't know. We came up with one year at the IRB for a reason. It was safe, it's a yearly study. Um, but there are colleagues of mine in Oxford who are scanning every four to six months. Uh, another study going on that I'm involved with that does every four to six months. When you're doing low doses of radiation, one millisievert or something like that, clearly you can do these in series. Okay, so before I move over to our collaboration, I wanna remind you at this stage, before I learned about Dr. Samadhi's work and what we were doing uh, with the wall shear stress, I wanted to remind you that we have 300, now we have 400, these are a little bit old, these are about three months old. Out of 400 patients we have followed, we have a ton of dyslipidemia, dysglycemia, and it's modifiable. We had an abstract at the AHA a couple of years back that when patients actually listened to what our dietitians and our exercise physiologists said, the disease actually got better, uh, their psoriasis as well as their vascular disease. However, this is our patient who I showed you earlier. I'm just gonna let you look at it for a second. Rough, right? I'd hate these to be my coronaries. 44, big, thick, calcified plaques, proximal LAD, mid-LAD. And we don't stop at a calcium score, right? We are able to get not only the calcium score, but we also get luminography. And so here, I wanna just move over to the concept before I get to the, the guidelines and our data, that here, if we had this image, it would have been so much easier to counsel this patient. It would have been easier to say, you have an ulcerated 70% you know, plaque, you have a 40% plaque down here, and gosh, you're only 40 years of age. Like this is really you know, something you need to take on. So that's when, is right at that time when I had given this talk and I'd shown these data that Dr. Samadhi had, um, I hope you remember this, Habib, we were at the CRT meeting and we were sharing a panel together and you had said, hey, Stone had just spoken and you had said, hey, I really think that some of the non-calcified plaques that you're showing, even if there's no plaques, there's going to be abnormal shear stress forces uh, in the wall. Now, I'm not going to give these data the, 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 the justice that they deserve. I know Dr. Samadhi and, and, and his team will be better, but what I've done is I've taken slides from that collaboration um, and I've shown some images that are characteristic of what I'd like to show. So looking down these areas where there are plaques, of course, there's going to be an increase in wall shear stress, the magnitude of the eddies around that wall. But the point of showing these are that when you do look at the wall shear stress, my sense is that they are out of proportion to the degree of stenosis. And so as I go through these slides, what I'm um, doing is I'm looking at areas where I seek stenosis, but then I also do not, but I see that the turbulence and the shear stress forces are high in that patient. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a smattering of cases. These are cases that had plaque. We had given the team plaque cases. And now what we're doing is, is as we're seeing, even when there's no plaque, there's still an increase here in the proximal portion of this wall shear stress. One may say, well, what? how can that be? If there's nothing going on, how can that be? If there's no plaque, why is there abnormal flow? Well, the answer is fairly straightforward to me. There's endothelial activation in these patients. And that endothelial activation is causing an expression of 
chemokines and cytokine receptors. It's bringing many, many abnormal cell types to the vascular wall. And what's happening is, is you're getting a lot of changes in the flow. Remember, denuded endothelium can only be treated when you treat the endothelial inflammation. So in 2018, I go back a year, in 2018, right as I had put this collaboration together with Dr. Samadhi, I had reminded everybody that psoriasis just made the guidelines that look, we finally did enough work over these 10 years that people recognize it to be a risk factor for early statin initiation. This was a very momentous occasion for our lab. But why did I tie that together with the wall shear stress? Well, because when one has wall shear stress, there has been rich data that statin therapy will calm endothelial inflammation. The question is, will those with statins on board have different wall shear stress? So we're doing that analysis now with Dr. Samadhi's group as well. I wanna remind you that the guidelines both in cardiology, which I've shown you here, and dermatology and rheumatology all cite that patients who have severe disease need more care, but CV risk assessment should be done every single time you see a psoriasis patient. So as I close, I close on an infographic and I remind you that psoriasis is an inflammatory disease. It's a systemic inflammatory disease. Treatment may impact the you know, sort of systemic inflammation. But my take home here is really using image guided diagnostics to uncover what's under and what lies beneath. So I always end with this picture and I, may, I published this just this past year. I promised you I'd end in 2020, but I'm actually getting you out to 2021. And what this is showing you here is psoriasis is a systemic disease. It's got comorbid disease all over the place. And if you look from the top of the infographic down, you'll see that it's a common disease. Here are the treatment goals. Here are the signs and symptoms. In fact, you have topical therapies, phototherapies, and then you have biologic therapies, which we've talked about. When you look at psoriasis, it's a hyperkeratotic disease rooted in systemic inflammation. And if you look at the comorbid diseases that are associated with it, look in the roots. You'll see that there's a person with a beer belly, right? So there's diabetes here, diabetes and obesity. You'll see that the central nervous system itself, there's a, there's a predisposition to anxiety and depression. You'll see here, there's a hand. This is psoriatic arthritis. One in three of our patients will get psoriatic arthritis. And then finally, what I've spoken to you about the heart, there's the leading cause of heart attack and stroke in those without risk factors are chronic inflammatory diseases. We must take the imaging that I've shown you and start applying it to see what lies beneath and to diagnose it. And I've ended at 7.45 to leave 15 minutes for questions. Um, I do love getting uh, questions on email. I also can be followed on Twitter at NahalMetaMD. I will answer my DMs. But I've left time for a question and answer session, mainly because I believe that most of our impact has been with me giving these types of educational lectures to providers and those providers really taking it back to their patients and their ecosystems and reminding them that psoriasis is a whole body disease and that it impacts the vasculature. 
treating the primary disease will actually impact the vasculature. And now we're on our 10-year follow-ups. We're going to see if treatment impacts 10-year progression. So with that, I'll stop and I'll say thank you and I'll take any questions. Uh, well, Dr. Maida, that was absolutely fabulous. And as our um, many um, cardiologists and um, vascular surgeons, cardiac surgeons, and nurses uh, have joined. Um, they can all appreciate that there, there, you know, there's some brilliant scientists out there, um, uh, but there, there are others that are not only really um, innovative in their work, um, but also are unbelievable in communicating extremely complex concepts. Um, and and I, I do want to thank you for that fabulous presentation. Um, and, and I, I also love the fact that you've left us some time for questions. So um, let me encourage our audience to come in uh, via chat. Um, and um, obviously, if there's some questions, Suzanne McNeil um, will, um, will let us know. Do you already have some, Suzanne? Okay. Well, let me do this. Let me just briefly um, maybe just pose one uh, question. Um, because as, as you've just taught us, in patients with active psoriasis, they seem to have at least 12% more plaque, most of that soft plaque. Um, they get increase in calcium over time with uh, therapy with biologics. They get regression of the plaque in a way that over a year that really is impossible to imagine. Um, and I learned a lot about the biologics, right? It was the anti-IL-17 that was the most impactful in your studies, and you're really leveraging the latest in uh, imaging and software technologies to understand this and uh, definitely appreciate our collaboration where we're, we're bringing together the wall shear stress, which really has mechanobiologic links to a lot of the work you're doing. So extremely exciting. And, you know, as most cardiologists, they say, well, wonderful, you're using psoriasis as a model to understand inflammation. Um, and I guess the implications of this are not only in patients with psoriasis, but potentially on patients without psoriasis who have implicated, who have mm-hmm. So uh, I, I know that this is kind of going through the minds of our audience. Um, and with that said, I'm going to pass it over to Suzanne to see, Suzanne, what specific questions we have and from who. Yeah, so the first one, we have uh, a comment along with two questions. Thank you for an excellent talk and for your dedication to improving the standard of care. In practice, do you have a systematic approach that you have adopted for identifying and implementing interventions with patients in the clinic? And at what age would you suggest that a patient with psoriasis see a cardiologist given the established connection with CMV? And, and who do we know who the question is from? Holly Jones. Oh, Holly Jones is director of research um, here. Hey, Wonderful. Well, Holly has three exceptional questions that she's posted that I would like to clump into uh, a single answer um, because I really do appreciate the questions, Holly. Um, the first one I will say is, yes, I, I, I feel badly uh, in, in cutting my talk and adding in the collaboratives. I did leave three slides out at the end that would have answered your first question. And just to go through it, I call them the meta three Bs. It's basically body mass index, blood pressure, and blood for glucose and cholesterol. So it doesn't even have to be fasting anymore, Holly. If you have a psoriatic patient who's gotten their first diagnosis, I get them treat, I get them diagnosed, I get them their body mass index, their blood pressure, and their blood for glucose 
and cholesterol. Those three will reveal their cardiometabolic status. So that's the standard of care. They sh I should not be the first person telling the patient they're obese. I should not be the first person diagnosing them with hypertension, but I frequently am. And then finally, they should not have their bloods never checked for glucose and cholesterol. And you may ask when to do this. First diagnosis of psoriasis. Um, there's no doubt that it, it picks up disease. Okay, that's number one. Number two, when do you start biologics was another question that came in there in terms of, oh no, second one was, when do you recommend seeing a cardiologist? In fact, you don't have to see a cardiologist. We have a few clinics around the country we've set up that they just see a healthcare provider. It could be a PA, NP, uh, internist. It could be down to getting the MA to just get all the vitals and handing them to a care provider. Um, we've used minute clinics. We used a few Higgy machines. So it doesn't matter who does it. You just need the three Bs answered is my thing. Blood, blood pressure, body mass index, and the blood for glucose and cholesterol. Now, your question on when to start biologic therapy is a great one. I say if it's indicated, you start it. So what are the indications? Um, genital disease, disease greater than 10%, psoriatic arthritis. So if any of those three are, or, or facial disease, excuse me. So it's face, genitals, so sensitive areas, anything greater than 10% of the whole body. And I would start it right away. Look, they're safe. I know people worry about the side effects and COVID and all that. I've seen worse psoriasis with these COVID holidays because of this, okay? So I would say when you can start a biologic, do it. The last question that Holly raises is a great one, which are what are some of the best practices that can be implemented to see results with patients in reducing obesity and increasing exercise in a population community? I'm so glad you think that I'm qualified to answer that question, and I'm so glad you asked it. Um, I actually sit down with the patient and ask for their level of seriousness. I'm like, do you really want to do this? And if they say yes, my best strategy, graze five times a day rather than eat three meals. Keep a time-restricted eating window. I only eat from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. I have a 17-7 break. Um, if I'm really getting kind of you know tired, I, I might break that a little bit. Um, exercise does not have to be you know, rigorous 150 minutes. In fact, what I tell my patients is, is if you can get some sort of a wearable device, get 10,000 steps in a day and make sure you're standing at least half of your work hours. So I have a standing desk. Um, my patients actually listen to me because I level with them. And I'm like, look, you're going to quit smoking. If you don't want to, let's talk about it next time. I tend not to ever push and I don't guilt. Um, there's no guilt in my world. I don't judge. So I say, hey, look, let's do this. And what patients feel, the best one we had, one visit to our dietitian, and I promise you five pounds off in a month, and it worked in 98% of my patients. My dietitian basically gives them a sheet of things that are safe foods. Sounds very Weight Watchers um, e, but it worked. And I'll, I'll tell you, if you have any patients you want to send up here from Georgia, either tweet me or, or email me. I will get them up here and we can do the five pound challenge. It works every time. Um, and if they're really thin, they may not lose five pounds. And in that case, I'll say you'll lose, you know, 3% of your body mass um, and it works. Well, so I hope I answered those questions for you, Holly. Yeah, you did. I, I, and Holly obviously is on the chat. Um, Suzanne, maybe as, as you pull up our next question, just um, a couple of things to those, those, those are great, great tips and tricks and pointers. Um, we, we do have a, you know, center for wellness and prevention and cardiometabolic diseases that's led by um, Drs. Devoki, Dr. Um, Burkle, as well as uh, um, Dr. Ramesh and Dr. Wynn, others here. 
So um, do keep your patience here in Georgia. <laughs> but, um, but I think some of the, um, the, the lessons you mentioned are, are incredible. I think do, does, does a diagnosis of psoriasis warrant some sort of cardiovascular phenotyping or are the three Bs that you mentioned sufficient? That's exactly right. So those three Bs, but honestly, it starts with an H&P. It starts with a good cardiovascular history. Um, and then it starts with getting the three Bs. But honestly, Habib, I have to say, I'm now throwing in a CT calcium score for every patient above 40. And in fact, I actually offer them a CCTA because we have access to them. But most of my patients in the community, we do image-guided therapy for. So I will phenotype either their carotids, uh, get an IMT, um, or I'll phenotype their coronaries. And I will find very high amounts of uh, prevalence of vascular disease. Suzanne, any other questions? Yes, we do. Um, this is from Anu. Anu Valanki? Yes. Dr. Valanki is one of our cardiologists. Wonderful. And I love the question. Based on your presentation, do you see a specific roles for hyperlipidemia or do you just think there'll be a, a paradigm shift from, from statins? I do think, Anu, that statins are here to stay. Um, they're definitely a cornerstone in therapy. I see, and you lo I love that you asked that because in the middle of my talk, I even said, imagine that person were on a statin too, huh? you know? We're working on that now. We've just gotten funding from a foundation, a really nice uh, lump of money, to start a, a trial to randomize, uh, not, excuse me, not randomize, uh, give rheumatologists and dermatologists the opportunity to prescribe statins rather than sending them out. So this, call, this is the CP3 trial, and we're rolling it out in July. And it may be coming to a theater near you if we come to Atlanta and find out that we're working with you guys. Habib, I'd love to speak with you about this. But we're asking derms and rooms, hey, if you've gotten the Meta 3Bs, why not just take the step out of it, go to a care coordinator and start the statin? So I think our new statins are here to stay. Fantastic. Suzanne? We have a question from Dr. Scully. Any data on infection rates when inflammatory disease caused CAD is treated with IL and other anti-inflammatory prescription? Dr. Scully, I don't know you, but that is a very smart question. You should look at the appendix of the CANTOS trial. There's a little bit of an upregulation in non-significant infections, which is why the FDA wanted a separate trial for Novartis. In fact, IL-1 beta therapy did not get the FDA approval it had hoped for because of some of the non-significant safety issues. It doesn't mean the game's over at all. It means that we just have some more to learn on what the therapy is and how often to dose it. So just uh, on that note, and, and I think if, if you had to distill the, the primary lesson of your talk, Nehal, is you know, inflammation, as others and yourself and others have taught us, is a very, very key part of atherosclerosis. And treating inflammation appears to regress plaques and psoriasis. So my question to you, kind of following up on Dr. Scully's question, is that I know that Paul Ridker and others have looked at um, treating inflammation, perhaps using you know, CRP or other biomarkers as a surrogate endpoint with things like methotrexate and, and other therapies. Um, you know, if you put your crystal ball in front of you and look at it, you know, do, do you think three, five, ten years down the line, um, beyond the anti-inflammatory effects of the statins, 
Um, are we going to move towards biologics and specific anti-inflammatory therapies in our armamentarium against non-psoriatic atherosclerosis? 100%, Habib, no doubt. We are at the point where I've just, with the three big societies put together, what's wrong with us? Why aren't we using colchicine more? Like seriously, what's wrong with us? Because Ladoco 1, Ladoco 2, Colcott 1, I don't know how many other acronyms that have CO in them we need before we see there's something magical about low-dose colchicine. Now, do I say go and put it in everyone's water? No, I don't, because I believe there's a specific patient we need to phenotype, and that goes into uh, Greg Julia. Uh, I don't know how to say his last name, but his, his question comes Giuliano, up with- Greg Giuliano. Giuliano, thank you very much. That question is awesome which is it's this collaboration of bringing in advance to identifying vulnerable plaques, but then also thinking that what is a vulnerable plaque made of? A bunch of inflammatory cells that guess what? Are treated by colchicine. Why did methotrexate fail? We chose the wrong population. I think that I feel badly that we ended up doing the, I'm blanking on the trial. And we, 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 we messed it up. We needed an, a better way of seeing whether people's CRP pathways, their IL-6 dribbling inf inflammation was high and activated. Instead, it used metsin as a criteria. That's such a heterogeneous group. So CERT, unfortunately, got tested and, 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 and sub shoved aside. Um, Interleukin-1 beta therapy, I do think is going to be coming back if they drop the cost. Um, Alaris was $64,000 a year or something. It's ridiculous. Um, and then with colchicine, I think what's going to be needed is just large prospective randomized trials and going out of the post-MI state. Fantastic. Suzanne, um, by the way, Greg Giuliano just joined us from Bay State, and he trained at the Brigham as our director of uh, inpatient cardiology. Awesome. Uh, go ahead, Suzanne. There's one question I'd like to know who I owe is because they've brought up LPS at Penn with Murdoch Riley and, and Sean Heffron. Okay. Could somebody tell me who Io Parastis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dr. Yanni Parasitididis is our um, director of cardiovascular imaging and nice. is a you know PhD in vascular biology as well as one of the smartest. So may I answer, I, I, Giannis, may I answer your question with a there's definitely different variants of CAD Wait, presentation. You, would, would you mind paraphrasing his questions? So I'm so sorry. Yeah. It's long, so just bear with me. Yeah. Um, do you believe that inflammation starts first and LDL oxidation follows in the subendothelial space? I do, yes. And is CAD the same for all people, or are there different variants of CAD with different presentation and severity? Um, yes, chronic inflammatory diseases do predispose to what I call, and Renu Vermani now agrees, excuse me, diffuse intimal thickening. And it just thickens the whole intima. And it's probably because of endotheliitis. And that is in contradistinction to narrowing of a focal stenosis. Um, and we're working on that because we do see that Indians, as well as other high-risk subgroups, do get um, diffuse coronary disease rather than focal narrowing. And we just don't understand why that's the case right now. Um, somebody else, there's two that I can lump up here. I think from Clifton Hastings, he's asked, do other data indicate inflammatory states have the same amount of impact? Yes, in short, IBD just got published in ASPC that it has an upregulation of coronary disease in its 50s. RA um, has a trial out called Target to Treat because there's pretty good evidence that there's a lot of um, uh, coronary disease in RA. 
And all of them recommend screening and treating aggressively. Uh, I would, um, you know, take uh, Dr. Iqbal has just asked me a question. Would you actually start anything if, this, if the three Bs are within normal limits? It's a great question. It's hard because some of my psoriasis or patients with psoriasis actually do still start it knowing that they're going to end up there, but I don't recommend that. I wait until their LDLs are spiked. Um, and usually I mean that's over a hundred. So unless your patient has an LDL under a hundred, I would probably still to, you know, move towards starting it. You could say, Nahal, you're being a little crazy. 130 is the absolute highest I'll let them go. Um, I do use a lot of red yeast rice and a lot of other alternative based statin therapies as well. If those are, um, if those are not, uh, 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 you know, possible. Nahal, uh, as we, as we approach the top of the hour here, um, I, I do want to maybe for you to comment briefly on the, um, the recent cardiovascular guidelines with respect to CT um, being used as a, you know, as a test to stratify patients, right? So for patients with intermediate uh, um, disease, intermediate risk of disease, CT has become a 1A recommendation as followed the British and the European guidelines. Could you make a couple of comments about where you see garden variety imaging and screening for cardiovascular disease, where is it today? What should we be doing? Yeah. With that patient and also, and where I is just, it? yes, and I just answered a question, Habib, on somebody, and I feel bad because I just hit uh, type answer and now it's gone. But what that person and I were just saying was someone said, if the CAC, if the CAC score was negative, would you still pursue a CCTA? What I'd like you guys all to hear is that imaging is better than none. And the best imaging would be luminography. Insurance companies aren't paying for it yet. We're working on that. The European guidelines suggest if you're a moderate risk patient with chest pain, you deserve a CCTA. We put it in through your P5, we get coronary inflammation, and we risk stratify you for your 10-year risk. I would urge you to look up that work. It's from Harris Antionides' group, Charamblos Antionides' group at Oxford. Um, but I would say, Habib, the easiest way to think about this is image is necessary. Imaging is necessary here. You're not going to be able to get bloodborne biomarkers and phenotypes without knowing imaging. So adapting the NICE guidelines from Europe, I would say that you have the ability for a moderate risk patient with chest pain to fight for a CCTA. Most insurance carriers now with a simple phone call and a mention of a paper will get their CCTA paid for with inflammatory diseases if they have chest pain. And I think that what we've seen is that the insurance carriers, as well as with the guidelines coming out in the U.S. in the end of 2021, are moving in the direction of incentivizing imaging with CCTA and actually maybe making it even a little harder to do more standard nuclear imaging yeah. um, and, and requiring pre-certification. Well, wow, what a, what a whirlwind, what an incredible talk. Um, we've, we've had, obviously, as witnessed by the wonderful questions, you know, real engagement. So um, I want to thank you so much for a wonderful cardiovascular grand rounds at Georgia Heart Institute. Um, I also want to let everyone know that Dr. Mehta's talk was recorded um, and will be available uh, like the other cardiovascular grand rounds. In addition to that, um, he and I uh, will now spend a few minutes doing a short interview so that he can distill in a maybe a 10-minute Q&A some of the key lessons um, that we should take away from his talk. And want to thank um, Suzanne McNeil and Robbie and 
Billy for organizing this incredible uh, venue um, and look forward to seeing you all next month. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me, Dr. Samadhi.